Hello from the East Coast to the West Coast and to listeners around the world. Welcome to the Truth Seekers Radio Show. I'm your host, Angeline Marie. Thanks for taking the time to join us today. We're broadcasting on Liberty Works Radio Network at Liberty Ra- LibertyWorksRadioNetwork.com and their affiliate stations. Also, don't forget, you can always learn more about our program and find podcasts posted at TruthSeekersRadioShow.com. Today, my guest is Adele Weiss. He's the founder of Weiss & Associates. His firm has done extensive research in the field of federal income taxation for over 25 years, and he, he has combined his analysis into workable solutions for clients. Mr. Weiss has a master's degree in constitutional tax law. He started working in the private sector and later realized the need for deeper knowledge in the field of federal income taxation. He's continually stressed that the federal income tax is completely lawful within the singular and limited jurisdiction known as the District of Columbia and its U.S. territories. There are differences between the two existing jurisdictions, both of which are called the United States, one of a constitutional term, and the other a statutory legal expression. Today, we will discuss the differences and how they relate to the federal income tax and the American taxpayers. So if you will help me, welcome Adele Weiss. How are you doing today, Adele? Doing fine, and good morning to you. Uh, It's in the afternoon here in Europe, but... uh... We'll work with the time zone changes. It's very nice to talk to you. <laughs> you too, Adele. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. So where I'm going to start is how did you get interested in the subject of income tax, the federal income tax? Okay, that's a very good starting point. Uh, as an adjunct to that, I thought I would at least let your listening audience know that uh, the first thing that Weiss and Associates does as far as a company you know, that we're trying to provide the service for we have no issue or disagreements with the IRS, as you've already alluded to, with the application of the federal income tax to those who are legal U.S. taxpayers. And obviously that applies within a territorial jurisdiction that belongs to the national government. Now, we do not interfere with the obligation of those who are U.S. taxpayers, so we put this out as a disclaimer just to make sure people understand that our service is directed just to a limited audience, and that is a fairly large limited audience. but. We call them American nationals, and we define this term to mean those who were born in the 50 states of the Union, those who were naturalized there, or even perhaps those who were born in foreign countries, but their parents are those who were born in the 50 states of the Union. Now, there's homonyms that occur, and I'm going to go into your question here in just a quick moment, but uh, there's some terminology that we'll be going through so that people can differentiate between statutory terms and those which are non-statutory. And our use of this term, American national, is a non-statutory one, basically identifying what is said in the Constitution. And the statutory definition of a U.S. citizen is far, far different, and we'll go into that. As far as how we got started, or how I got started, um, I was following the status quo back when the earth was cooling off, if you will, and uh, I was basically just trusting those, like most people do, the parents, the society, that this is the way things were, and I didn't think to challenge it when I was young. But for some reason, this flat-earth society mentality, as I call it, uh, gave way to starting asking questions. And it started, I guess, with an article that I found in Strategic Investments out of Baltimore that I was reading. And there was a guy in Orlando, Florida, 
he's no longer around, I don't believe. But uh, fine gentleman, as it turned out, he's made a few mistakes, but I don't uh, think the mistakes are a bad thing in one respect, that we learn from them, that they're positive. But anyway, uh, I took his information, and I was going to try to disprove it. That was my goal. And after spending a full day in the law library wearing out the clerks, uh, I came back trembling because the information that he had provided, which is very, very limited in the scope of what we're doing today, but it was a starting point for me. And so it opened my mind up to starting to think kind of like what happened uh, hundreds of years ago. And I'm not comparing myself with Galileo or, or Copernicus, but I did write the Galileo Paradigm, and it's posted on our website in our resource center for anybody that wants it. And it was basically a boiled-down version of my master's thesis so that I could help those who are not well-educated in legalese and how all these things are interwoven to at least give people a starting point, a reference point. And so that's where my journey started, is to try to help people and give pragmatic solutions. Well, how... How did that federal income tax start, and why do we still have it today? It started back in 1894. Uh, This is a surprise to many people. It was that far back, but it was the Income Tax Act of 1894. One year later, the U.S. Supreme Court in 1895, they basically were dealing with a challenge to the Income Tax Act of 1894. And under the Pollock versus Farmers Loan and Trust decision, a United States Supreme Court uh, case, the Supreme Court basically, if you will <clears throat> allow me just a latitude of, I guess, saying a few things that came right out of the publication, it says basically that this, uh, the Supreme Court declared that the direct tax that was the Income Tax Act of 1894, as it was written under the terms of Article 1, Section 2, and Section 9, the way in which it was written avoided the rule of apportionment, and the Supreme Court declared it to be an unconstitutional act without the inclusion of the rule of apportionment. And this is where the journey really started, is this act of Congress and then the challenge at the Supreme Court level the following year under Pollock versus Farmers Loan and Trust. And the beautiful thing about it, if you read the 16th Amendment itself, half of what is stated there, and I'll just read the 16th Amendment, it's rather short, the Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes on incomes from whatever sources derived without apportionment among the several states and without regard to any census or enumeration. So half of the whole statement is talking about the omission or disregard of the rule of apportionment. Now, in the Pollock decision, the court basically said, if you try to omit the the reference to Article 1, Section 2 and 9, the rule of apportionment, then it's unconstitutional. But yet they never challenged the 16th Amendment. And the reason is the existence of two separate jurisdictions. And we have a resource center, as I mentioned earlier, on our website, and we post a lot of good information there. And in that, we have the legislative intent of the 16th Amendment. This was published in the Congressional Record of the United States Senate on June 16, 1909, and it's promulgated on pages 3344 and 3345. Uh, This is one of my favorite documents because it really brings to light the intent of the 16th Amendment. I'll just give you a few good comments. And it says that the Pollock case was held by the Supreme Court to be a direct tax and therefore not within the power of the federal government to impose unless a portion among the states of the Union. <clears throat> and it goes on to say in a following sentence, the decision of the Supreme Court in the income tax cases deprived the national government 
of a power, and that power was to levy the income tax upon the American people, the states of the Union. At that time, there weren't 50 states, obviously, but as we've expanded to 50, uh, or the, the government has, uh, those Union states are separate jurisdictions, and therefore, Taft, who wrote this, he was the president at the time, he said, I therefore recommend to Congress that both houses, by a two-thirds vote, shall propose an amendment to the Constitution conferring the power to levy an income tax upon the national government without apportionment among the states. And this is why the Supreme Court never challenged the legislative intent of the 16th Amendment. It was only applicable in one jurisdiction, which many people use the term federal zone, and by that we're saying Washington, D.C., and U.S. territories. That is a unique territorial jurisdiction. So that's where this whole journey started from a historical standpoint. A lot of people don't think of distinction of two jurisdictions, and perhaps it's probably something people really need to take a pause and rethink that, because the nation's capital is really not the District of Columbia. There is none. Uh, we use that term euphemistically, but it is a foreign jurisdiction. In Europe, everyone knows that Monaco is juxtaposed to France, but it does not mean that Monaco is a satellite of France. It is an independent, sovereign city-state, and the District of Columbia is a municipal city-state, if you will. It is a foreign jurisdiction, and that in that jurisdiction, the Constitution is not law. It has no full force and effect of law, and this startles people because most Americans are aware that all these political office holders take an oath of office to protect and to defend the Constitution, but yet inside their territorial jurisdiction, they operate as a monarchy, if you'll allow me that latitude. And so from that perspective, this is where the history of this extremely long-winded narrative has started and evolved to, and all the public offices that exist are domiciled inside the District of Columbia, or the federal zone, if you'd like to use that term. I guess the thing that you can look at to help differentiate laws is that within the territorial jurisdiction, the District of Columbia, if you will. All they use or have to use are statutory laws, and that's why you see the IRS using statutes continually. Inside the Constitutional Republic, common law is the law that is applicable, and therefore the Constitution is the law of the land, and it protects Americans with their unalienable rights. But those who are identified as statutory U.S. citizens, and you can find the definition at 8 U.S.C. 1401A to mean persons born in the United States, meaning D.C., the territorial jurisdiction, and subject to the jurisdiction thereof, it's identifying those people that were born in territory belonging to the national government and not in the 50 states of the Union as we know it. Mm -hmm. So that's a quick overview of how this thing evolved at that point, but I can conclude this comment in this section basically by saying that it is not the 16th Amendment that has caused the problem for American nationals with being imposed with the federal income tax mentality and a presumption of liability. It is the fact that they voluntarily made an election, filed a Form 1040, and when they did that, it is a renewable process. And you can read the regulation at uh, 26 CFR 1.871-1A, and you will see very clearly just what I said, that American nationals are only liable if they derive income from sources within the District of Columbia called the United States, within or without, that are effectively connected with the performance of the functions of a public office. And the functions of a public office 
is a euphemism for a term trade or business. Another statutory definition at IRC uh, 7701A26. So I'm throwing out a lot of things real quickly here, but I want you to get the idea that there's two jurisdictions and that this whole thing has evolved to the point where we're at today. But it, again, is not the 16th Amendment that has caused the concern for most Americans. It is the fact that by social custom, by assumption, by presumption, however you want to describe it, Americans have inadvertently filed a Form 1040, and they made an election by doing that. And once they did that, they're treated as if they were U.S. resident aliens. And U.S. resident aliens are just one of the many types of U.S. taxpayers. Okay, Adele, let's take our first break, and when we come back, we'll get more into who really is liable for these taxes and who isn't. Listeners, today my guest is Adele Weiss. He's a founder of Weiss & Associates. We're discussing the federal income tax, and we'll be back momentarily on the Truth Seekers radio show. This alert just came in. This special announcement is for business owners and leaders of organizations who've been waiting for the right time to build. General Steel has made it impossible to wait any longer with rock-bottom prices that could save you thousands. That's right, General Steel, America's leader in pre-engineered structures, is offering buildings at prices you will never see again. Don't miss these prices. A 50 by 100 for $35,000. You heard right, that's 5,000 square feet for $35,000. Manufacturers, if you need a larger building, try a 100 by 100 commercial building for $129,000. You can't afford to rent with these prices. Imagine a 70 by 100 foot church building for under $69,000. With the economy improving and interest rates still at historic lows, you can't afford to wait. So call Call 800-965-1291. 800-965-1291. 800-965-1291. You can control your health care with Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is an alternative to expensive health insurance. You can finally make the right decisions for you and your family. It's not insurance, it's medical cost sharing. You can affordably control the cost of your medical expenses. It's a group of individuals effectively sharing the cost of health care and paying far less for it. You don't even have to pay for procedures that are unnecessary or that violate your conscience. This is based on shared values. You are not alone. With Liberty Health Share, you're part of something bigger, a group of people who care for and support one another. Join the movement of people who share in medical costs and change the way you pay for your health care forever. It's simple and easy. Call 1-800-714-6993 right now for more information or visit libertyoncall.com. Get a free estimate today. Liberty HealthShare, there is an answer. Welcome back. You're listening to the Truth Seekers radio show today. My guest is Adele Weiss. He's the founder of Weiss and Associates, and he's giving us some historical background and some facts on the federal income tax. So Adele, just before we went to the break, you were starting to kind of get into who would be liable for these taxes and who is not. Can you now go more into that. Who are the legitimate U.S. taxpayers? Certainly can, Aline, uh, Angeline. 
the first group, and there's about six of them, so people might want to scratch these comments down as an outline so they can follow it. The first one would be federal workers, and the easiest way to identify the list of federal workers is to look at the Internal Revenue Code uh, 6331a for notice of levy. And here you will find federal employees, federal officers, and elected federal officials of the District of Columbia, the national government, and any instrumentality. So if you get that as the very starting point, it identifies perfectly what the legislative intent was saying, that they levied the income tax upon the national government. So if you're a federal worker, it meets the criteria for the 16th Amendment based on the legislative intent of the 16th Amendment. The second group would be resident aliens, and these are people from foreign countries, whether they be from China, Brazil, Portugal, or wherever, and they decide to move to the United States. Now, the United States in this context could be the Constitutional Republic or any of the U.S. territories or even the District of Columbia. So wherever they live within that jurisdictional boundary that I've just outlined, the Constitutional Republic or the territorial jurisdiction, both of which are called the United States, this is basically identifying them as a true U.S. taxpayer. There's no question that they owe the tax. They have no benefits under the Constitution. Okay, the next group would be any income that's derived by any individual who is using federal property. So you can find a real narrative on this at the IRC 861A. This will outline a group of people in different types of services where you can be labeled as deriving income from sources within the territorial jurisdiction, District of Columbia, called the United States, or without. So wherever you're making money off of federal property, such as treasury bonds, treasury bills, and anything else related to federal property, then you owe a federal income tax. You are labeled as a U.S. taxpayer, and we have no argument with that. The next group would be statutory U.S. persons. Now, you find the definition of a U.S. person, a statutory U.S. person, at 26 U.S.C. 7701A30, and this includes the term U.S. citizen. Now, I probably should back up a little bit again on U.S. citizen here at this point, because, again, there's two types, but with the homonym, and this is why we use the term American national vis-a-vis U.S. citizen, because any time that you see a federal form and they ask, are you a U.S. citizen, you will notice they never define the term. So you have to know that you're signing a form that is created by the government and they're using their definitions, and you need to define the term. And you perhaps might want to use something like not to be confused with an 8 U.S.C. 1401A statutory U.S. citizen then you indicate that you were born in the Constitutional Republic. So those are just a few disclaimers that you perhaps should think of if you're signing a voter registration card or doing any type of documentation that would be used as a federal instrument or a document. Okay, so any again, anybody that's a statutory U.S. person is a U.S. taxpayer. The next group would be non-resident alien individuals, and this is a, a new term for most people, and I'll define it shortly, but it's that group of people, non-resident alien individuals who are living in American Samoa or Puerto Rico. There's a lot of advice being recommended to Americans that we've caught over the Internet telling them to move to Puerto Rico and set up businesses. But if they do so, they're in U.S. territories and they are U.S. taxpayers. The next group would be non-resident alien individuals who made an election, a voluntary election, 
to be taxed as if they were a U.S. resident alien. And again, the regulation for this is at 26 CFR 1.871-1A. Now, you will find all of this information that we're talking about today generally listed on our resource center at our website, uh, weissparis.com. And we put a lot of information in there for educational purposes because we want people to, first of all, focus on getting an education. Knowledge is power. And we have a lot of information that we would hope that people take advantage of. But this group, non-resident alien individuals, is a confusing one. And I'll just try to make it real brief at this point. This is something that the U.S. Congress has created, a term, if you will, so that they can obfuscate those who they're really directing this message toward. You're non-resident to U.S. territory, and you're alien to the legislation of that federal territory, the District of Columbia and U.S. territories, if you meet this criteria. Now, you can find the definition at IRC 7701B1B. The second B is a capital B. The first one is a small b. And you have to scroll down in the definition section under 7701 to find it. But when you get there, you will find that it is stated, if you'll allow me to paraphrase it, that a non-resident alien individual is one who is neither a U.S. citizen nor a resident alien. Well, a U.S. citizen they're referring to is a statutory U.S. citizen. Now, there's another document in American Journal of Jurisprudence that talks about U.S. citizens a little more clearly. And it is 3C Amger 2D, and it's section 2689. And in that, you will find that they're identifying those who are subject to the jurisdiction of the national government, called the United States, and that they were born there, but they were born in territory belonging to the national government. So there's a real distinction. And again, because of the terminology, we don't use U.S. citizen, we use American national, but the government, the, con the Congress, has created this non-resident alien verbiage so that they can somewhat obfuscate it. If you look at that same regulation that I just cited, uh, 1.871-1B4, and the B is a little b, you go down to expatriation, and here you see the real explanation, at least from the perspective that we're able to document, that this non-resident alien term is actually identifying American nationals. Those who were born in the 50 states of the Union, naturalized or by parentage, they have a citizenship within that constitutional republic. And it basically says, as far as expatriation to avoid taxes, the heading, but the key word is expatriation. Now, keep this in context with the Constitution. There's only one group of people that can expatriate, and that are the, those are those that are in the constitutional republic. Those who were born in territory belonging to the national government are the property of the government. They're under the dominion and control of the national government. They don't have constitutional rights, such as expatriation. And then it goes on to further say they will lose their U.S. citizenship. Now, if you think back to that statutory definition I mentioned, 7701B1B, they say one has, by this definition, you're neither a U.S. citizen nor a resident alien. The question arises very quickly, how can you lose something you never had? If they say in their definition you can't be a statutory U.S. citizen or a resident alien, the key is, is that this regulation is clearly showing you that you can expatriate, and by expatriating you lose your U.S. citizenship. Well, they're talking about the Constitutional Republic, and expatriation is becoming a hot topic today. 
uh, the increase in expatriation is growing fairly almost logarithmically, but it's it's not massive right now. But the trend is definitely bullish. People are leaving the country, and the majority of people doing it are those who have great wealth, for the most part, and others have other reasons for it. But uh, there's a there's a process of expense. There's like twenty five hundred dollars. I don't know the exact dollar amount, but it's somewhere between two thousand twenty five hundred to expatriate with all the paperwork. But you better have a second citizenship before you do that. You'll be without country if you don't do it. Adele, so anyway, we're venturing off. Adele, I want to ask you something. Let's just backtrack one second, because this gets confusing. When you were listing the six, was the last one non-resident alien but voluntarily electing to pay? Is that where most, what I would consider the average American that was born, say, in Indiana, is that where we would fall into that number six? Yes. You have roughly 330 million people living in the Constitutional Republic, plus or minus, Mm -hmm. whatever percentage. And that population density are what we're classifying as American nationals, and those are determined by the U.S. Congress and the verbiage they use as non-resident aliens who have made a voluntary election. And that is the last group of U.S. taxpayers. I apologize for jumping around a little bit. Uh, It's my favorite subject, so... (laughs) get carried away at times. So that's probably where a lot of us fall. So when you say we're voluntarily electing to pay, can you explain to the listeners now how we have done that? Certainly. The step that allows you to make a voluntary voluntary election is that you choose to file and pay your first Form 1040 federal income tax. By doing that, you have to file a, a return. And the return that is used most frequently in everybody's mind is the Form 1040 or one of its variants. So anytime you fill out a Form 1040 for the very first time, you have made a voluntary election. That election, however, is sub silentio. It means under silence. You're not aware of what you're doing. And any contract, if you just look at the definition of a contract, you have to have full disclosure, willful and knowing intent. You have to be of legal age and so forth. Well, none of that occurred when you filed that first Form 1040. But the government basically is saying, look, it's not our responsibility for you, for us to tell you who you are. You have to know who you are, and therefore, if you elect, file and pay a Form 1040, you must be a statutory U.S. citizen, or you're one who has made an election to be treated as if you were a U.S. resident alien. See, they're not saying you're taxed as an American national or somebody born in the Constitutional Republic. They know the limitation on their authority by the 16th Amendment, and what the legislative intent said, as well as what the Supreme Court said in Pollock versus Farmers Loan and Trust. So they used the euphemism of this term non-resident aliens to draw you in and you make the election that they don't put warning signs up and they don't put notices or disclaimers. And yet what they're doing is they're bringing you into their jurisdiction. And the moment that you're identified within their jurisdiction, you're their property as long as you choose to stay there. Now, the beautiful part is you can leave the U.S. tax club. As an American national. And let's get into that. Let's take our second break, and when we come back, we'll get into, I like how you say, the U.S. Tax Club. Listeners, today my guest is Adele Weiss. He's the founder of Weiss & Associates. He's educating us today on the history uh, and present of the federal income tax and how it relates to us. So we'll be back momentarily on the Truth Seekers radio show.
If you are struggling to pay or haven't been making your student loan payments, listen carefully to this urgent alert. Have you been out of school for 10 or more years and you're still making your student loan payments? Are your student loans past due or even in default? Can't go back to school because of an old student loan problem? We can help you if you qualify. Your student loans can be taken out of default. We can stop the wage garnishments, stop the collection calls, and stop the seizure of your tax refund. Give yourself a break. Stop the stress and see if we can help you reduce your student loan payments. One quick 10-minute call could solve them right now. So call the Student Loan Helpline now. 855-371-FAST, 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 855-371-3278. This is a fee-based document preparation service to help you access free government programs. Call for complete details not available in all states. Want to lose weight? Then turn your body into a furnace that literally melts the fat away. That's exactly what Thermometer does. Thermometer is uniquely formulated with patented ingredients like bitter orange, brown seaweed, and decaffeinated green tea. Their combined thermogenic properties boost up your metabolism and turn up the heat in your body so you melt the fat away without any jittery side effects. Thermometer is not available in stores. It's only available to listeners of this station. We're giving away 100 free bottles right now to anyone who enrolls in our special trial offer. Call now for your risk-free trial offer. 800-430-4147 One more time, 800-430-4147 Welcome back. You're listening to the True Seekers radio show. Today, my guest is Adele Weiss. He's the founder of Weiss & Associates. And we're talking about the federal income tax. Adele, before we go any further, can you give us your contact information, how we can find out more about you and Weiss and Associates? Certainly. Uh, thank you for this uh, opportunity. Our website is www.weissparis.com. Again, Weiss Paris, W-E-I-S-S, Paris, like the city, dot com. And we have a list of our services. We have assistance for American nationals who have issues with enforcement actions such as liens, levies, notice of intent to levy, uh, notice of deficiencies, summons, and then we have the revocation of election. We will soon have another service and that will relate to private sector employers who need to be aware of the fact that once an American national goes through the revocation of election, there's no longer any requirements by the U.S. Congress to continue withholding under Chapter 24 of the Internal Revenue Code. And we've got the, everything we're doing is based on federal law. So that gives us the foundation to say what we're saying, and we're not putting ourselves in jeopardy, nor are we putting any American national in jeopardy. And we have a pretty good performance record. I'm one who basically said there's a lot of good information out there, but I needed practical, pragmatic solutions, if you will, to help people. Because there's one thing to get the education, and then the second thing is, how do I apply it? How do I make it meaningful? And that's what we've tried to do, and we're doing it quite successfully. Okay, uh, Adele, 
Um, so going back to before the break, I asked you then, do most of us fall into number six where we're this non-resident alien, but we volunteered to pay tax? So then to me, the opposite, because then the next question would be, you gave us the six instances of people who are liable to pay the tax, but then the who is not liable to me would be the opposite of the last one that you mentioned, the non-resident alien the ones that don't volunteer or elect to pay the tax. So how do we leave the U.S. Tax Club? That's where we want to go next. Okay. Well, that's the best part to consider, I guess, at this point, and you're absolutely on target with the non-resident alien group. Um, We have a revocation of election process, and as I alluded to earlier, everything we do is based on enacted federal tax laws and Supreme Court decisions and so forth. But if you'll read the IRC at 6013G, little g, number 4, capital A, so again, 6013G4A, you will find basically that American nationals, in this case, non-resident alien individuals, as Congress has used the term, and it says basically you can elect to leave the U.S. Tax Club. Now, think of it in this context. If you can go into let's just say Kiwanis Club, for lack of a better term, uh, an organization that people may want to be participants in. But at some point, let's just say as a Kiwanis Club member, you get tired or you decide that you don't want to participate anymore, you can leave. You can terminate your membership. Well, the same thing is true with the U.S. Tax Club. You can enter it by making that voluntary election, filing your first Form 1040 individual income tax return, and then through 6013G4A, we have a full documentation process, again, based on what the U.S. Congress has stated in this statute that allows American nationals to leave the U.S. Tax Club. It's perfectly legal. It's absolutely lawful. And we have just received correspondence from the IRS for one of our clients, and we continue to improve our education on this. It's amazing. But it's an IRS letter 288C in which they basically, and I'll quote you what they said, We have received your information regarding your revocation of election established by the U.S. Congress and have associated the information with your account. It means you're no longer a member of the U.S. Tax Club. Now, that's as close to an admission as we've ever received from the IRS, and we have a process that works. We've had close to 3,000 clients right now that have gone through the revocation of election process, and we have yet to have any issue there because everything we're doing, again, is based mm-hmm. upon federal law, Adele, not our own opinion. Adele, why do you think, after they go through all the smoke and mirrors and the play on words, you know, they're hiding behind these words and these phrases to kind of, I, I, I mean, to me, it's trickery to trick us, hoodwink us, whatever word you want to use. Why then would they have this revocation of election? That is a very, very good question. I'm glad you asked it. Um, And the answer is very simple. There's two things. The Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, you can't compel people to associate with you, okay? So the federal government has no authority to compel Americans to participate in their U.S. tax club. The other thing is that if you read the 13th Amendment, it outlaws slavery within the constitutional republic, and it outlaws involuntary indentured financial servitude. So if the government allows you to go into their tax club, they have to permit you to leave it because they would be in direct violation, especially of the 13th Amendment, and they don't want to go there. Now, if you read the United States Department of Treasury, 
you will see at 31 U.S.C. section 321 D1 D2, and that's a little d, you will see that the federal income tax is basically a gift or bequest made payable to and for the use of the national government, the United States. And as a result of this, it's saying because you gave us a gift, you cannot sue us for money that you gave us. It's like you deciding to give to United Way, and then later on you change your mind, you want your money back. You say to United Way, I'd like my money back, and they will look at you and smile politely and say, I'm sorry, you gave it to us. It's not your money anymore. Mm-hmm. And so that's the same thing they're doing here with the Treasury uh, statutes. So they're covering their bases so they cannot be sued. They allow the exit doors because of the constitutional requirement under the 13th Amendment, which they have taken an oath of office again to protect and defend, and they will not block you from leaving the U.S. Tax Club. They can't do it without violating the 13th Amendment. And it is a breath of fresh air for most Americans, especially all of our clients. They're euphoric when they get this kind of uh, release, and they no longer, from the year in which they correct, correctly leave the U.S. Tax Club, all future years, they have no obligation. The ending of the participation in the tax club is complete. It's forever. And you can find that stated at 6013G6 in the same statute. And again, all statutes are written by the U.S. Congress. So, Adele, you you educate people on this subject. Now, that's one piece of this, but the other piece is if, let's just say, I decide that I want to go that route. Now, how do you deal with your or these people's employers? Because it seems like private business owners, they have, they, I guess they think that they have this obligation to collect these taxes from their employees or they could get in trouble and they don't they don't want to get in trouble so how do you handle situations such as that for people that are still working Uh, well the first thing you have to do is look at our resource center we have Mm -hmm. a number of different articles that are posted there one of them came right out of the internal revenue manual uh, toward the scroll down just I'm talking to my friend here helping me uh, it's posted at 26 January 2016. It's one of our most recent posts, and it talks about IRS payroll deduction agreements back in 2004. And if you'll click on that for me, I'll read it to you. Um, there you go. Sorry, I'm talking and instructing here simultaneously. But this came out of the Internal Revenue Manual at Section 5.14.10.2.2. Again, 5.14.10.2.2, and I quote, private employers, states, and political subdivisions are not required to enter into payroll deduction agreements. It says, continuing, taxpayers should determine whether their employers will accept and process executed agreements, such as Form W-4s. All right, so you see very clearly that if you work for a private employer, maybe a state government, or any type of political division, like maybe a county government, you have to, if you're a U.S. taxpayer, you have to go to that employer and ask, will they withheld, withhold rather, mm-hmm. uh, federal income tax payments and send it into the government? You're asking them to take the burden of being an accountant for the government, gratis. But if you're not so inclined, because you're not participating in the U.S. tax club any longer, 
you're perfectly able to show this to your private sector employer and show them very clearly they don't have any obligation. Now, there's another statute that you can look at in the Internal Revenue Code. It's 3402N, as in Nancy. It's a little n, and it has two sections, and it identifies the same process. If you weren't liable the year before, you're not going to be liable for the current year. There's no withholding requirement, and that the employer can't be beat upon by the IRS. So we have a lot more to it than that, but, but those are the starting points. Uh, and let's see if there were some other things I'm thinking of here. I didn't plan on getting into this, but uh, we're going to have a new. Well, that's uh, okay. Would one so would one would one way for somebody to kind of get around this? Could you try to work out an arrangement that you're just a contract yes, if, worker? Yes, people Do you have find that need. We yeah. we will have a new service for this within seven weeks, okay. and it will be posted on our website. And right. it'll be for those who have completed the revocation of election because. You must do that part first before you look at dealing with your employer in this context for Chapter 24 withholding issues. All right. Well, let's go ahead and take our last break. This is a good stopping point. When we'll come back, we'll pick up. So, listeners, today my guest is Adele Weiss. He's the founder of Weiss and & Associates, and we are getting education on the federal income tax. We'll be back momentarily on the Truth Seekers radio show. Want to lose weight? Then turn your body into a furnace that literally melts the fat away. That's exactly what Thermometer does. Thermometer is uniquely formulated with patented ingredients like bitter orange, brown seaweed, and decaffeinated green tea. Their combined thermogenic properties boost up your metabolism and turn up the heat in your body so you melt the fat away without any jittery side effects. Thermometer is not available in stores. It's only available to listeners of this station. We're giving away 100 free bottles right now to anyone who enrolls in our special trial offer. Call now for your risk-free trial offer. 800-430-4147. One more time, 800-430-4147. This alert just came in. This special announcement is for business owners and leaders of organizations who've been waiting for the right time to build. General Steel has made it impossible to wait any longer with rock-bottom prices that could save you thousands. That's right. General Steel, America's leader in pre-engineered structures, is offering buildings at prices you will never see again. Don't miss these prices. A 50 by 100 for $35,000. You heard right. That's 5,000 square feet for $35,000. Manufacturers, if you need a larger building, try a 100 by 100 commercial building for $129,000. You can't afford to rent with these prices. Imagine a 70 by 100 foot church building for under $69,000. With the economy improving and interest rates still at historic lows. You can't afford to wait. So call 
Welcome back. You're listening to the Truth Seekers radio show today. My guest is Adele Weiss. He's the founder of Weiss and Associates, and we're discussing the federal income tax. So, Adele, we were talking before I interrupted you with the private business owner question. We were on the revocation of election. Is there anything else that we should um, cover on that, or should we? Can we go to maybe the next step or the next point that you might want to make? Uh, I guess we can address another question that you may have. Go okay. forward. What is this IRS notice of deficiency? Okay. I saw that on the, on the website. Well, that's a form of enforcement action that the IRS uses, and it is a type of action that if you don't address it properly with the United States tax court, that it will lead to a notice of federal tax lien. Mm-hmm. And so basically from that context, you're going to understand that it is something that is used under 6321 of the Internal Revenue Code. Now, we have a letter from a federal attorney called Michael. His name was or is Michael L. White. He's retired now. But in 1994, he was responding to an American national in Cicero, Illinois. And he basically outlined the fact that um, the section in the Internal Revenue Code for 6321, 6331, which is levied, and I think uh, there's a number of them that you'll find at the top of that page. But it's from the National Archives, and of course that's an agency of the federal government, and the Office of the Federal Register is a sub-agency of the National Archives. And i give you his last comment here, and it's in the last paragraph. It says, our records indicate that the Internal Revenue Service has not incorporated by reference in the Federal Register a requirement to make an income tax return. And so it's very clear that, first of all, American nationals are not required, again, based on the 16th Amendment. And if you look at what he found as far as those statutes that I alluded to, 6331, 21, and so forth, he found that they were published as far as implementing regulations for ATF-type tax, and ATF being alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. So it's perfectly legal. Now, Dwight Avis, we have his testimony before the House Ways and Means Committee back in 1953, where they were investigating the IRS for corruption, of all things. And he basically alluded to the fact that your income tax is 100% voluntary, and that the ATF taxes, your alcohol, tobacco, and firearm taxes, are 100% enforced. Now, If you understand quickly that the excise taxes for ATF are put on the manufacturer, so if you as a consumer consume alcohol, firearms, cotton production products like blue jeans and so forth, then you pay that excise tax as part of the cost because the manufacturer has to build that into the cost of their product. But you're not directly taxed. You're taxed indirectly via an excise tax that the manufacturer passes on. Now, from that context, those implementing regulations only apply to ATF issues. There are none for Title 26. And this is why this whole circle keeps going back to the legislative intent of the 16th Amendment. They don't have authority to impose income tax and that you only become liable via the voluntary election. And the way you leave it is through the excise, excuse me, for through the uh, revocation of election. You leave the U.S. Tax Club. You know, a lot of Americans believe that their obligation, their duty even, to pay these federal income taxes, they look at people that you know, have gone to court over this 
and they call them slackers and losers. Oh, you know, why don't you want to pay your fair share to the country? I think a lot of that is because of education. We haven't had the education that you're giving us today. So how do you, how do we, once we hear the truth, how do we go about trying to change this mindset? Well, I think the first response that comes to my mind is education. Uh, that's where we have our resources, and that is basically the information that we put out. It's in a nutshell. We don't try to get complicated. We don't give you a pamphlet that has 697 pages. We try to keep it precise and right to the point so that you can study. So when you have educational material that's easy to study, those two go hand in hand to enhance this idea that we're talking about here. And the next idea that comes to mind is that you have to realize that the comments about taxpayers and tax cheats and tax evaders and so forth, Mm -hmm. that's only applicable to those who are U.S. taxpayers. Now, if you read the economy, plumbing, and heating decision, This is a case from a federal appellate court, and this was an interesting statement that the court made. It says, revenue laws relate to taxpayers and not to non-taxpayers. The latter are not within the scope of the revenue law. No procedures are prescribed for non-taxpayers, and no attempt is made to annul any of their rights or remedies in due course of law. With them, the non-taxpayers, Congress does not assume to deal, and they are neither of the subject nor of the object of federal revenue laws. So we we clearly see that there's two groups. There's lawful U.S. taxpayers. We gave you the six groups, and those that are in that grouping should and must pay. If they don't pay, then they're the tax cheats, they're the tax evaders, they're the lawbreakers, okay, Mm -hmm. because they've obligated themselves or been obligated by the government to file and pay. And if they don't do that, they're in gross error. And we certainly don't engage ourselves with people in that category. However, on the other side, because there is a legitimate group of those who are lawful non-taxpayers. Whenever the IRS makes presumption, we're able to go into U.S. tax court and deal with these issues in behalf of American nationals, and we also go through this revocation of election process with our clients so that they can be identified correctly, and therefore any claims that are made, we can address them under the context of dealing with the U.S. tax court. Well, we're about running... Uh, out of time to the end of the show. So why don't you again let people know how they can contact you and if there's any other closing thoughts that you'd like to leave with the listeners, that would be great. Okay. Well, thank you again for this opportunity, Angeline. Uh, The email contact would be bilateral, B-I-L-A-T-E-R-A-L, at gmx.com. Again, bilateral at gmx.com. Our website is weissparis.com. And we would encourage any of the listeners who have an interest in this to go there and take a look at what we have and send us an email. We'll try to correspond with you. We have question and answers, and we have a wide grouping. Also, we have YouTube video series that we've created, and we talk about the revocation of election, jurisdiction. Uh, we talk about exiting uh, this tax club. Uh, we talk about the notice of deficiency issues and how to defeat it with the U.S. tax court. We talk about the private sector employer. In fact, we have two parts on this subject, and it will be linked with this new service that we'll be coming out with very soon. So we have a lot of information there. We're also working for those who are looking at Foreign Account Tax Compliance Transaction Act. In other words, those who have FATCA issues internationally by banking and foreign country. Uh, This is for a different audience for the most part, but we're working in this area too 
to help people to actually get past the fat issues. So we're actively enlarging the scope of what we're doing, and we have a real dynamic service at what we do produces results. And with all our activities, for example, with the tax court, we have roughly 2,000 plus client cases before the tax court that we've completed and we've won. And I know this is just not going to sound right, but I'll say it anyway. We've won every single time if people follow our instructions and do exactly what we said. And there are those who are sincere and those who are sincerely wrong. I encourage everybody to read the documentation so that you don't take my word for anything because you just hear a voice. You need to look these resources up, verify them, and then prove it to yourself to your own satisfaction. And then when you're ready, we would appreciate the opportunity to communicate with you. And again, I just want to thank you for your courtesy for offering this opportunity to share this information with your audience. And Adele, we thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk to us. And I'd like to have you um, on again in the future. Listeners, today my guest was Adele Weiss. He's the founder of Weiss & Associates. And until next time on the True Seekers radio show, God bless.